Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm 46, and we're going to we're going to just talk about some practical stuff tonight. Um, I hope you're reading your Bibles and taking time. <laughs> you know, kids, kids reading their Bibles, that, that ought to challenge us that we need to be reading our Bibles. It's so good. Thanks for sharing that. Scripture um, speaks in amazing ways to us, and, and uh, if we're, we're in it, we'll hear God's voice. And so tonight I want to I talk about... Um, Getting the most out of the Psalms, reading the Psalms to the glory of God, and we've we've talked about this a little bit when we were going through our David study. We talked a little bit about David, the song, the songwriter and the worshiper. And uh, I've been thinking about some things um, lately that used to frustrate me a lot. Um, one of the things that used to frustrate me a lot when I was a young Christian is if I went to church and they sang worship songs I didn't like. That frustrated me a lot that they didn't sing what I wanted them to sing. Like, they, don't they know what the best songs are? And if they knew what the best songs were, then they would sing them every week, and everybody would be happy. But I didn't realize I was looking at it from only my perspective. Like, those are the, those are the ones I like, but I didn't think about how somebody else might be getting blessed from the other. And then there was there's something else related to that is that, that I forgot that, or I didn't know yet, maybe I didn't learn, that church is not all about me. And that's something that I needed to learn. And so, um, the thing that I, I learned, I've learned about myself as I grew is that I learned that I generally didn't like to be formed. I wanted to choose my own way. I didn't want something else to come and form me in any kind of way. I wanted to be kind of the master of my destiny and the person that made the decisions about what was good for me. And rather than letting my parents do it and God do it and my teachers do it or whoever it is that... Uh, was responsible for me. I wanted to choose for myself what was important, and, and I was that way at school. If I if I liked a subject, then it was important. If I didn't like it, it was unimportant. And th- this is all going somewhere, so um, l- don't let me lose you on this. But uh, Cicero, the the Roman philosopher, he said um, the purpose of education is to free the student from the tyranny of the tyranny of the present. So sometimes we get caught like in this moment and what I like right now and there are things that happen in our life, you know, that matter later, that we don't know that what we're getting now, like, uh, best example I can think of, of this would be, like, when we're reading our Bible, sometimes we're reading through Scripture, and it doesn't speak to us in that moment, okay? Has anybody had the experience where at the moment you read through it, but then later on, the Holy Spirit brought that Scripture to mind when you needed it? Anybody have that an experience like that? So... Uh, it was what was needed at a later time. You read it earlier. It didn't, it didn't make the connection, perhaps, at that moment that it made at a later point when God brought that to mind. And so Cicero says that education can free us from the tyranny of the present. Aristotle, he said that the aim of education is to make the pupil like and dislike what he ought. Okay? In other words, uh, when we get educated in any sphere of life, uh, part of that education is to teach us what is the good, what is the right, what is the beautiful. Okay? So we, we need that training because if we just go by our own appetites, we don't always get there. 
Augustine defines virtue as the uh, ordinate condition of the affections in which every object is accorded the degree of love which is appropriate to it. And uh, that's kind of wordy, but what that really means is that there are some things that we ought to love more and some things that we ought to love less, and that good education, I'm using that in the broadest possible sense, not just school, but good education teaches us to love the right things with the right amount. Okay, and we need we need to learn that because uh, in our hearts we tend to be prone to idolatry, and one of the things that is systemic in idolatry is that we create gods according to our appetites. Okay, and so um, and when we meet the real God, we find that He's not always the way we would like Him to be, because sometimes He's harsh, sometimes He's uh, He tells He tells us He doesn't like our behavior, and we need to change. <laughs> And what we like is gods that suit us. And what God says is, I'm God, and you need to conform your life to me. And so a good education um, in, in spiritual things, a kind of schooling in spiritual things, will teach us to love God the way that we should and to love those other things in their appropriate place. Many times idols are not bad things in and of themselves. Sometimes they are, like when you create a, a statue and you worship that. But there are other things that can be good that can become idols because they're not in their proper place. Come on, you know what I mean? Like, you can make an idol out of your spouse. Your spouse should be somebody that you love, but not first. God needs to be first. You can make an idol out of your children, and you can love them more than God. And should you love them? Yes, but not more than God. And so we need to learn how to love in the appropriate ways. And there's there's a whole lot that's connected to all of that, but... um. The idea that we need to have have some kind of thing come in and teach us what to love and how. And this sounds a little oppressive to our modern ears. It, it may. That someone else should decide what's important for us. Okay, that somebody else should do that. And keep in mind that the kind of thinking that feels that that's oppressive comes from the idea that there's nothing absolute. Which means there's no value except what I choose. There's no beauty except what I think is beautiful. Um... Uh, there is no right except what I think is right in my own eyes. Nothing true except what I think is true. Um, and and we tend to buy into things like this too. When we say beauty is in the eye of the beholder, it's really not beautiful is what God says is beautiful. You, you realize what I mean by that? And I know there's lesser degrees in some sense in which we we define beauty, but but true is what God says is true. Beautiful is what God says is beautiful. Right is what God says is right. And and we have to, because we're fallen, we have to, first of all, trust God's definitions are right, and then we have to begin to follow after those and pursue those things. And we need to, we need to amend our appetites to agree with what God says is good and beautiful and right. Are you with me? So these things are all leading to something. And so, um, you know, that whole idea that some other authority should come in and choose what's right for us. That's anathema today. Uh, and I have to admit, when it comes to my life, that I found uh, that there were certain things that I hated that because I was forced to do them, I'm better off because of it. Like singing those songs, that whatever we sang in church. I mean, they weren't terrible songs. I, just didn't, I wouldn't want to sing something else, you know? But instead, we maybe it was, I, I confessed this to you a couple weeks ago on Sunday morning, that it was usually the hymns that I didn't like. And now I'm telling you, there's some depth and richness to that that I didn't appreciate when I was young. And I appreciate now that I'm older. Okay, 
So some things, some things change there. And there are some things in life that I hated that I'm richer for. When I was in seventh grade, the authorities in my life told me that I had to take home economics. And um, I'm telling you what, I don't know of any 13-year-old in my class that wanted to be in that class. Nobody would have chosen home economics. Um, the only consoling factor was that the teacher was kind of pretty. And so that, was, that helped a little bit. But, but still, it was things like uh, little lessons on cooking and fabric. And I had had a traumatic experience at Cloth World when I was a little boy where I fell down the escalators and, and things like that. And so cloth was... And 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 I'll tell you something else, and I'll fill you in on this later. But when I was a little boy, I had a button phobia, and that's weird. <laughs> and that came about because uh, I was sitting next to this. My mom had this can of buttons. I'll just tell you now. My mom had this can of buttons, and uh, there were all these different buttons that she, if she needed an extra button, she would sew it on. So if she had spare buttons. Sometimes they come with your pants or your jacket or whatever and you she put them in this tin and when I was a little boy I liked to take those out and play with them sometimes they would end up in my mouth and she used to say if you keep doing that you're gonna end up swallowing one of those all of a sudden this weird phobia developed that I didn't want to sit next to anybody at dinner time that was had buttons on their shirt I was afraid one of those is gonna it never occurred to me that that could end up in my stomach and I had this weird button phobia so all of that goes into this home ec class well one of the things that happened in home ec is I learned how to, I had already gotten over my button phobia by that time, thankfully. But one of the things that I learned was that um, I learned how to sew buttons on. And I'm telling you, probably, it probably is not an exaggeration to tell you that every year since then, that's 30, 34 years, every year since then I've had to sew buttons on something. And uh, I'm grateful they made me do something I didn't think I would like to do. And, and in addition to that, um, I was also for to deal, forced to deal with literature and, and grammar and biology. Hey, I went, to, I went to a secular high school, and I took biology, and they taught evolution, and I survived. So I was forced to deal with some of that. And, um, and I'm a, I think I'm a more well-rounded person as a result of some authority saying to me that we're going to take responsibility for you and form you, okay? Instead of me just saying, you know what I like? I like a lot of PE. I like weightlifting. I like recess. I like all of those things. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to minor on the other stuff. Forget the grammar. Forget biology. I still don't care for uh, studying biology or the sciences. But uh, I could have just said, forget all of that. I'm doing this. But instead, somebody who knew better than me insisted that I be formed a certain way. And they were my authority. I wouldn't have chosen it at the time, but they brought me to it. This is all going somewhere, like I said. Um, I think that if if we were forced to admit it, that there are some things that we wouldn't choose in life. We would let certain things that we don't care about slip and certain things we would take up. And I think this is one of the the reasons why we come to church. And the way that I've, I've found around oppressive individualism in our world is to see again the glory of being formed together into what God wants us to be. Okay, when you come to church, you don't get to choose the people you come to church with. I mean, I know we can in one sense because we live in a consumer society. If you don't like this church, you can go down the road and find ten other churches. But I guarantee you, in every church you go to, you're going to find somebody that you don't quite get along with. 
Okay, And in every church you go to, you're probably going to find that people have different tastes and flavors and different uh, ideas about things than you do. And you're going to find that that's kind of difficult. But this is part of God's design as he puts us in a family. And through that, he causes us to be formed together into what he wants us to be. Instead of just picking the people we prefer, he puts us with other people that force us to develop character. And that's a really, really... It's a really, really good thing. And he also, uh, when we come to worship, we don't put on head, headsets and uh, have our own little screen in front of us. We all sing the same songs together. And that's part of formation because we're lifting up with one voice the name of Jesus and glorifying him. And so I don't get to pick the songs that I sing. I don't get to pick that. Somebody else picks that. As fa- in fact, as pastor, I've, I've tried very hard not to interfere with our worship leader to let him pray and talk about with the Lord what it is that he'd like to lead. And unless something has false doctrine in it, we're not going to pull the song. Okay? I, I just think that's really important that, that they have the freedom to do that. And so when we come to church, if I'm honest, I, li- I still like some songs better than I like others. Anybody here willing to admit that? In any situation, some songs we like better than others. That's fine. But when we come into agreement and we come into this this opportunity for spiritual formation, we set aside ourselves and we say the most important thing is to lift up the name of Jesus. And something good comes from that. And if we left it to ourselves, we might might let slip certain things that we don't think are important. Um, Let's just take the Bible, for example. Would anybody here be willing to do the unspiritual thing and say that you have a favorite portion of Scripture? Anybody? Okay. What's your favorite portion? Anybody? What's your favorite portion? The book of Jeremiah. Okay. Good. Anybody else? Yeah. Paula? James? Okay. Very practical. All right. Anybody else? There's no, you're not going to get a demerit Psalms, okay. Proverbs, okay. Christina, would you did you say something? All right. Any, any other answers? All right. Well, I think if it's okay to admit that, but I think it would be wrong for us to say, you know what? I only like Genesis. I'm only going to read Genesis. Okay? We can like Genesis. We can feel like we can relate to Genesis, but it would be wrong for us to neglect the rest of Scripture, right? We need to be well-rounded in our spirituality, and we need to, to read what God has put before us as his word. And so I think uh, as we take a look here tonight at the Psalms, which, which is what we're dealing with, um, we can't neglect certain things. And I, I want to tell you the natural thing you might think that I'm going to talk about here is a little lecture on self-denial, but that's not today. I think there's a more pleasant way for now. Uh, self-denial has its place, but, but I think the more important thing is to, to get us connected with the, the Scriptures and help us to read those more in depth perhaps than we have before. And so um, let's talk about that. What, uh, what, kind of, what kind of format or genre are the Psalms? What would you call that? Psalms. 
What is it? Poetry, okay, poetry, songs, right? And what's poetry kind of known for? Rhyming, okay? Not in, not in this case, is it, though? Okay, what else? What kind, of, what kind of language does it use? I mean, if we were smart alecky, we could say poetic language. But metaphorical language, like picture kind of language, right? Okay, so... And we do this with songs still. I was thinking of a few of the favorite lines from songs. Maybe you have a favorite line from a song. And here's a few of mine. Just, just notice the poetry with me. Uh, thou my best thought by day or by night. Thou my best thought by day or by night. Be thou my visions, that song. And um, If you're thinking about where's the poetry in that, by day and by night is pretty much saying all the time, isn't it? It's another way of saying all the time. And what, what does it mean by my best thoughts? My highest aspiration is to think about you. Um, my sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to his cross. Now, I hope this won't trouble you to hear me say this, but it's not actually our sin that was nailed there. It was Jesus. He took upon himself, but we're using poetic language to describe that event. And Paul does the same thing in Colossians chapter 2, and he says the written code was nailed to the tree. It's poetic. It's a way of saying that when Jesus died, your sin placed on him died with it, with him, right? Okay, and what about uh, sinners plunged beneath the flood, lose all their guilty stains? There is a fountain filled. If you think about that song, it's kind of a gory picture in a way, but it's got a powerful point to it. My sin, uh, you know, the that my life when... When um, washed by Christ loses the guilty stain, we're cleansed through his death. What about come thou fount of every blessing? Okay, who's the fount of every blessing? It's God, isn't it? That's through him that we receive every good and perfect gift. He's the fount of every blessing, and fountain is a, a source of provision. So what a psalm does, I don't know if you have one of these or not, but when we go camping, one of the things that we do in order to save space and when we travel, we use a compression pack. Anybody know what that looks like? Compression pack. It's this sack that has these straps on it. You can put your clothes in there and you can crank it down, crank the straps down real tight and it squeezes it all together and you got a lot more stuff in a lot less space. And this is one of the things that Psalms does with poetry is it, it's a, it's compressed thought inside some of these ideas. Um, you don't, when you read poetry, you don't read poetry just for information. You read poetry for understanding. Um, and I think part of this is that, that the Psalms speak, speak to the mind through the heart. So as we, we read through the Psalms, and this is probably one of the reasons why, Christina, at the end of a, a long day, you feel, man, it's easy to go to the Psalms and get something is because it's uh, emotive. It speaks to the emotions, and it draws us in. And it's not like when you are working through a really difficult, logical argument from the Apostle Paul. You know, the Apostle Paul doesn't speak in Bible verses. He speaks in long, long sentences. And we divide those up in Bible verses so we can remember them. But but if you were to read it in Greek, you would, like, there's, I think, in uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 14 is one sentence. One sentence, lots of little clauses in there. And so um, that takes a little bit of concentration to unpack all that. But when you're reading through the Psalms and you're hearing, Lord, you're my, my fortress and my shelter. 
in, in very compact way. Those words are filled and loaded with meaning. Not meaning that, that we get to just make up what that means. Meaning that's there. Meaning that if we'll unpack it, it's powerful. Okay? And so this is one of the things that Psalms does. And so we've been talking about uh, the poetic here, but um, many people feel that uh, the Psalms are their favorite part of Scripture. And uh, for me, that's, that wasn't really the case, and it took me a long time to really get on board with this whole idea that the Psalms, they're, they're good, they're Scripture, but I struggled with reading poetry, and I think, if I'm honest with you, I, I think I had to mature in order to get to a place where I could read the poetry the way it needed to be read. And so it took me a while to appreciate the Psalms for what they were. I would have told you I love, I love reading Apostle Paul. The Psalms were hard for me. I didn't think that way. I, didn't, I, I was maybe too analytical, and I didn't get the pictures, and I didn't realize all the illusions that were being made that help us to understand something about God. And then I didn't understand the practical purpose of Psalms. Okay, The Psalms are anointed, but... Uh, Excuse me, they're not anointed, but they're anointed, period. Um, they're inspired, but maybe they're inspired for a different purpose than what we may think. We might think that the Psalms are simply inspired with information about God. We, this, is, this is my analytical problem. Is I, I went to the Bible looking for a command that I could obey. Okay? That's not bad, but it's not all that's there. And I also went to the Bible looking for information that I could process. And that's not all that's there. Okay? God speaks in a lot more variety of ways. And so when you come to the Psalms, one of the things that we need to realize is that when you're joining in reading the Psalms, you're joining in the songs of Israel and the songs of the church. It's a life joined together. Remember the whole idea of spiritual formation? So it's not just me liking this song. I'm, I'm singing this psalm. I'm saying this psalm with all of Israel, and this is part of who we are as the people of God. This prayer that's being prayed helps conform my prayers to the way that prayers need to be prayed because sometimes we get selfish. And so one of the ways that um, the Spirit inspires the psalms is that he inspires people to write prayers that direct people back to him. So this is, this is kind of an interesting thing, is sometimes we think that the, the end of Scripture is, is God speaking to us. But in the Psalms, one of the things that really stands out is that the Scripture is not just God speaking to us, but it's God speaking through people so that we can speak to God. Okay, so if that sounds weird to you, I don't know, can you see that up there? Okay, we have God, and then we have um, the people. Okay, and then we have God once again. So here's one of the things the Psalms does. It's God speaking and inspiring people. And the idea of inspiration, I don't think the right idea of inspiration is that God is whispering over the shoulder of David or Moses or the sons of Korah or whoever else the psalm writer is and saying, this is the next word you need to write. I think what he's doing is he's shining his light through that personality, and they sit down and they write, and as they do, it comes out to be the words of God. And here's the other thing, is that this poetry is not spontaneous poetry. It's thought out. Okay, And this, this through a monkey wrench, 
in my understanding of what prophecy was because I don't know if you knew this, but the same form that's used in Psalms is used in prophecy too. Have you ever noticed that, that they speak in prophetic parallelism? They do. And what that tells us is that not all prophecy is instantaneous and ecstatic. Like it's somebody, the Holy Spirit falls on somebody, they just to get the picture, they kind of get the shivers. Maybe that doesn't always happen that way. But this is how I imagined it when I was young. And then out comes this loud, booming voice, a little bit different from the normal voice, and followed by, thus saith the Lord. And that's prophecy. Well, when you think about the fact that these writers, like Jeremiah in particular, he writes, um, they destroyed his prophecy. Did you know that? They took up his prophecy and they ripped it up. And he told his assistant to write it again. So he laid it back out. What is there in Jeremiah? Isn't there 51 chapters there? It's long. He tells him, let's write it again. And he writes it out. A lot of it's in parallelism. And that takes time. It takes time to do that. So what we have is God inspiring the people. So as they sing the songs that are inspired, then it's speaking back to God. This isn't the only place that's done this. Okay, Another place that this happens is in spirit-inspired prayer, um, praying in tongues. When you pray in tongues, it's God here inspiring you with words that you don't understand to pray to God. It's God praying through you. Isn't that interesting? And so here in the Psalms, it's something like that. He's inspiring people to write these songs and these prayers. And as we sing them, we're singing the God-inspired prayers back to God. We're praying the God-inspired prayers back to God. And so you get this kind of process in which God is working, and he's not only doing that, but he's forming how we pray. Because um, sometimes we kind of lose track, and I'm not saying we pray the wrong things. I, I think that sometimes when we pray, we have the wrong kind of focuses sometimes. And so God helps us to do that. And so this is one of the ways he does it. He inspires these prayers. Uh, for most Christians, the Psalms are the most loved, but for me it wasn't. And, and I had to learn some of these uh, some of these lessons. These are packed with um, experiences and packed with emotion. Eugene Peterson said, uh, prayers are tools. Listen to this. Prayers are tools not for doing and getting. He's not saying you can't pray to, to accomplish something in the spiritual world or that you can't get something as you pray, you know, after all... Give us today our daily bread is that. But he's focusing on something else. He says that the prayers are tools for being and becoming. Do you understand the significance of that? Is that part of prayer and part of the purpose of prayer is not just so that we can talk to God and get him to move heaven and earth for us. Part of the, and this is a big part of prayer, is that when we go to prayer, God moves us so that we can be and become the kind of people he wants us to be. Right? Do you think that... When we go to prayer, and we've talked with the God of the universe who loves us, who is virtue par excellence, there's nobody better, do you think we're going to remain the same or changed? I mean, if we're really tuned in, don't you think that when we talk to God, we're going to be different as a result of it? It doesn't just change circumstances. Prayer changes us. And I think I think Peterson's right in this aspect, at least, that they are tools for being and becoming. In these, God is working his will in our bodies and souls. 
And uh, there are poets that wrote these poet these uh, psalms. Poets use words to drag us into the depths of reality. There are things that are said that if we hook on to a sentence or a particular way something's said, it uh, unlocks something for us. Um, Sunday, somebody said, you said something in your message that, that really struck me. And, um, and it, it, struck, it had struck me earlier. I don't know if I'd read it somewhere or what, but it was that bitterness finds a job. And that's kind of a poetic way to say something. Bitterness finds a job. It finds something to do. And so there's a poetic way that kind of unlocks the idea more than just if we said bitterness will have effects. Okay, well, that's true. But bitterness finds a job shows that it's going to find something to do in a big way. So we need to understand that uh, poetry and Hebrew poetry in this way can unlock the depths of our faith uh, in a way that maybe prose can't. And maybe this is one of the reasons in God's um, sovereignty and in his knowledge that he chose to give us the Bible not just in one format. I mean, can you imagine if all of the Bible is just like the Ten Commandments? Man, or the phone books, like where it lists names? Boy, that'd be dreary. And those are there for a reason, but I'm glad the whole book's not like that. Okay? Because there's there's purpose in it, but there's purpose in the other as well. And so... Uh, he's given us this aspect, I think, to, to speak in and develop depth in our lives. He speaks to our minds through our heart. When you come to the Psalms, one of the things that we should ask is, when we read any particular psalm, what is the theme of this psalm? Because there's a theme, okay? Uh, let me suggest some for you. One is a wisdom psalm, and a wisdom psalm, it's going to teach us something about how to follow God in a Another kind of psalm, and we're going to look at one in just a moment, it's a trust psalm. The point of the psalm is trust the Lord. Okay, In that, in that case, we develop the th- or understand the theme. Some psalms are laments. They're like, God, uh, how long, O Lord? Or, um, you know, something along those lines where it's decrying the injustice and calling upon God to act. There are Thanksgiving psalms and praise psalms. There's historical psalms. Probably you remember one of the historical psalms, and I can't think of the uh, the address for it. it. seems like something like 131 or something like that, 113, 117, somewhere in there, where it says, um, his love endures forever in repetition. Anybody remember that? And it kind of goes through the history of Israel, like he delivered you from the Egyptians and his love, and he made the sun to shine by day and the, the moon to shine at night. Uh, and his love endures forever. And it's taking you through redemptive history, and it's showing that what has accomplished this from start to finish is his enduring love. He's a covenant-keeping God. And so in that case, it's a historical psalm, and then there are some that are psalms of celebration. I would suggest to you that when the Israelites pass through the Red Sea, they come out the other side. Miriam leads the Israelites in the song of triumph. That's a celebration psalm. I will sing unto the Lord. He's triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider thrown into the sea, right? And so those are triumph psalms, and or excuse me, celebration psalms celebrating God's goodness. Um, so let me mention some tips real quick. We are, we've got a little bit of time here. Number one is when we come to the Psalms, the first thing I think we need to do is we need to ask the Lord to hear its meaning. 
Okay, it's got a meaning. There's there's some depth to it. There's allusions that it refers to. Some of these psalms make uh, small allusions that point back to previous things that God's done in history, like the the bitter waters um, or uh, salvation from Egypt or something else. And some of the times we read those psalms, we ought to go back and refer to those allusions. But the first thing we want to do is we want to ask the Lord to unlock the meaning. He's the author. He knows what these mean and what we're intended to get out of them. So let's ask the Lord first, what is the meaning of the psalm? Here's the second thing, is when you come to the psalms, slow, slow down. Slow way down. Don't read them fast. Because you're reading, you're not reading like a manual, how to build your dresser from Ikea or something like that. You're you're build you're you're working through poetry and poetry you have to go slow and think about the words that are there so slow down and i i wanted to say again that these psalms were written slow they need to be read slow okay so when you come to psalms if you go slow in the gospels great but when you come to the psalms go even slower read slow pay attention to every line okay and the next part is um Read it out loud, okay? It's not going to have the same effect as if it's written in Hebrew because uh, there are certain things that they do in Hebrew that uh, are ways that they use figures of speech and illusion that we don't, and we just have to chalk it up to the fact that English is not going to carry everything over. And one way you can get around that, if you're up for it, learn Hebrew, okay? But if not, then we have lots of really good translations in English, so I would suggest read the Psalms in the ESV, read it in the King James, read it in the NIV, read it in the NLT, read it in the Revised English Bible. There's, I could probably name 50 translations. And you, when you do, it's going to bring some depth to that. And we're going to get a little closer by looking through lots of windows to what the Hebrew is like. Okay. So read, read it out loud, because when you read it out loud, you'll hear it. Most of the prophets, when they were writing, especially when Israel returns from Babylon, when Judah returns from Babylon, they didn't speak Hebrew anymore, most of them. Did you know that? They were speaking Aramaic. And so when uh, Ezra gets up to preach from the, the law, he has to have several people translate it into Aramaic. So he preaches, and then all the translators are let go, and they speak the Aramaic. Um, and so they had to hear. So you're not the only ones, and, and me, I don't read Hebrew. We're not the only ones that are deprived by having to hear it through a translation. But my point in saying that is that most of them needed somebody to read it to them. Okay, There were a lot of people that didn't have literacy like we do. And so a lot of these things were written in poetry for the very purpose of it being memorable. Okay, Because they can't go back and read it themselves, some of them. They need to hear it. And they need to remember it. Okay? So that's part of the, the reason it was an oral culture and things were passed down orally. Read it out loud. There's power in that. And then the fourth thing is pay attention to illusions, not illusions like a trick. Illusions, which means there's something that alludes to something else prior to it. Okay. Um, pay close attention to things like that. I mentioned one of them, like the bitter waters or the exodus from Egypt or some kind of historical event or like um, I think Psalm 3 is when David flees from his son Absalom 
And so there's some allusions to that that kind of stand out, and we need to understand what those are about as best we can. Um, Look at the cross-references for the allusions if you need to. And then I would suggest unpack what's there and not ourselves. Like, we don't need to dump our emotional baggage or furniture, if it's positive, into the Psalms. We need to get out what's there. Okay, what's there is good. What's in us needs to be reformed by what's there. We read out of Scripture, not into it. Does that make sense? Like, you don't want to try to read it through 20th century eyes. The best we could do, and we, we have a hard time doing this because we're so far removed, is to try to read it as the first hearers heard it and then bring it by a bridge into our modern world. Okay? And God will help us to do that because he's the best at bridging cultures. Uh, certainly he is because he came from heaven to earth. So unpack it, what's there, and not ourselves. And then relate to the situation it addresses the best that you can. This is one of the things they do in, in German. I, I know very little German. But here's one phrase. They call it the Sitzenleben, which means the situation in life. What's the situation in life that it addresses? Uh, David in Psalm 3 is on the run from Absalom. He's dealing with an enemy. Okay, He's dealing with an attack from somewhere. So now we have to, as best we can, identify with that. Have we ever been under attack? Certainly we've been under attack. We've been under attack by the enemy. We've been under attack by people. And we may feel that the world is against us. How do we deal with that? Well, trust in the Lord. Have you ever been afraid and felt like something bad was going to happen or uh, you've, you've worried? We, need to, we can find psalms that relate to those things, and we need to, wor- we need to uh, try to bridge that gap as best we can. And the Holy Spirit will help us to do that as well. Now, I wanted to mention that we can only uh, worship can only be a response. As I said earlier, it's God giving the words of worship. And then, of course, um, when we uh, speak back to God, we're really, in a way, only giving back to him what he's given us. Would you agree with that? Like, It's his heir. It's not ours. We haven't co-opt his heir somehow to now be our heir. And we've taken it away from the sphere of God. As We might say we own property, but there's a lot of things that are, that are not ours that we can't claim power over. Are you with me on that? And so one of those things is air. And the way that we speak is that we take air in and we breathe air out and it moves across our vocal cords and we stretch our vocal cords in a certain way and shape our mouth in a certain way so that the air could pass through and it makes certain sounds. And if it's sincere, that it's reflecting what's in our heart through the words that we've learned that are carriers of meaning for us. And so we do all of that and we're really, in a way, giving back to God what he's given us. Right? And so we can only do that as response to him, but he calls upon us to do that, to give him the glory that he deserves. All right, let me mention uh, some things in poetry here that might be helpful, because one of the things that we deal with is we sometimes try to overdefine when it comes to these things. So let me mention three ways that the Psalms use poetry. Write these down or memorize them if you want. Uh, the first one is with synonymous. Is that right? Does that look right to you? Synonymous? Okay. That's what I'm aiming for anyway. Synonymous parallelism. So um, I'm going to give you an example of this in a moment. The first line, if you, if you have uh, a more modern translation, the line breaks will show this. If you're reading the KJV, you're going to have to do it 
You have to do it in your mind a little bit because it doesn't stand out in poetry. It just puts it in verse form. But if you if you see it in some of the newer translations, you'll see a first line and a second line. The first line will be um, saying something, and then the second line in synonymous parallelism will will help by saying it again in another way. You ever said to somebody, in other words, this? You said something, and then you say the same thing in different words, so there's clarity. Okay, that's what synonymous parallelism parallelism does. Okay. And um, I guess I'll just give you an example of this. Psalm 27, 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Same, a similar thing in the second line, synonymous parallelism. The next one is kind of like this, but it's actually the opposite. Antithetical. Oh, that so, sounds so boring. But... It's really important, and you'll recognize it when you see it. The second helps by saying the opposite. Okay, so it'll say one thing in line one, and then the opposite in line two. Okay, let me give you an example of that. This is Psalm 44, verse 3. It was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their army bring them victory. It was by your right hand, your arm, the light of your face, for you love them. Another one would be, and this is very common in the Proverbs, it'll say the the wise man does this, line B, the fool does this. So there's the statement, and then there's the opposite of it. Okay? And then there's one that's a little more complicated, and you'll sometimes see this. This is called synthetic or building. Okay? If we can get through this boring stuff, it'll get more exciting in just a moment, I think. Psalm 29, verse 1, uh, ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord, what? Glory and strength. So the first line states something, the second line expands upon it and takes it further. Okay, so this is synthetic, and sometimes in this kind of parallelism, they actually use three different lines. And if you recognize that, you can kind of see what the psalmist is trying to do. He's trying to do something. He's trying to make a statement, and instead of defining second line differently than the first, like in the synonymous kind, it helps you to understand something a little more about it. One of the mistakes I made when I was a young pastor was that I would try to read the Psalms and poetry and break them up the same way that I did the writings of Paul. And that's a big mistake. It'll lead you to try to define words differently. And I wish I could give you an example of that. And then uh, usually there's a theme in every Psalm. Like I said, trust, wisdom, something else. All right. I told you Psalm. 46, let's take a look at that, and we're going to look at how we can come to some depth with this in the time we have left. Okay, I'll, I'll read it. Psalm 46, verse 1, we'll read through the whole thing. It says, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her, and she will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in an uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice, and the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolation he has brought upon the earth. He makes wars cease the ends of the earth, to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow. And shatters the spear and burns the shield with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. 
I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. That's Psalm 46. Okay. Um, What are the natural divisions of this psalm? One of the ways you can look at this is by by theme, or if your, your Bible breaks it up into poetry, which looks something like this. Okay, I don't know if you can see that from back there, but there's a lot of indentation. You'll notice that some of the verses have a space between them, and it shows kind of a natural break in there. And what that does, you, you can naturally think, okay, the translators thought these verses belonged together, okay, and that these verses belong together. And that, that's one natural way that you can do that. But I think uh, an even better way, because I don't just want to trust this to my translators, I want to read the content and ask, where are the divides in this? And so the way I see it here, that there are some natural divisions. And I think you're going to see in verses 1 through 3, a collection of verses, verses 4 through 6, and verses 7 through 11, a collection of verses. Okay. Um, Let me ask you the question, does the psalm tell us where we are? Is there a, a place in geography where this is mentioning? Does it mention a place? I don't see a place mentioned there. Look in the title of it, Psalm 46. If you read those um, descriptions that are there, those are in the those are in the Bible. Those are in the um, with the original languages, so we're not just reading what's there. These things are attached to the psalm from the earliest part. These aren't just our translators telling us something. Um, it tells us this, for the director of music, the sons of Korah, and according to some kind of song sound. Okay? And then, notice uh, here, uh, it doesn't tell us where we are. Let's ask the question, what's going on? What's going on in this psalm? Look at verse 2 and 3. Anybody? There's turmoil going on, okay? How about how about in verses 4 through 4 through 6? What's going on there? If we if we take what Jeremy said about turmoil, what's this describing? Okay. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The holy does that what kind of picture does that describe for us? What is it? The presence of God? Okay. Is it chaotic? Stream, do you have any picture a stream in the city of God? Does that sound like turmoil? It sounds peaceful, doesn't it? Like there in that second part there's a, a peaceful portion. Okay. And then um what about this last part here? Verses seven through eleven. Can you see anything there? It's kinda it's kinda God. Bringing peace upon the earth, isn't it? Can you see that? He's breaking the bow, shattering the spear. Okay, think about these for a moment. What are the what are the illusions that are there? The pictures that are there. Any? Can you see any pictures? Any metaphorical descriptions here? Sorry. 
I didn't, I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Lots of action, okay? Pictures like uh, descriptions of anything that might mean a little bit more than what is being said here. How about in verse 2, the mountains and the sea? Okay, any picture in that? Or river? Nation, nations in an uproar, the kingdoms fall, the God of Jacob is our fortress. How about fortress? Does that suggest anything to you? More than, is he talking about a literal fortress or something else? It's, not, it's probably not literal, is it? It's probably more figuratively. And then city of God, what, is, what does he mean by city of God? Is he talking about Jerusalem or heaven? And what would you say is the theme? Let's just start with that. What's the theme of this uh, psalm, Psalm 46? There's going to be turmoil on earth. There's something going on in heaven. And then... God is going to do something. I think it's calling upon God's people to trust him, don't you? Okay, so here's how I'd, I'd lay this out. is In verses 1 through 3, there's chaos upon the earth. God is our refuge and strength, a present help in trouble. We should lean, t- lean into him. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. This is like a, a picture of everything bad that could happen happening. Like the worst that you can imagine happening is happening. That all of the land is giving way. And the thing that you need to remember about the sea is that in Psalms in particular and in Hebrew thought, the sea means chaos. So the mountains usually meant the high fortress places. So that's the safe place. Get on top of the mountain. In fact, um, in most of the ancient world, they tried to build their citadel upon the mountain. They call it the Acropolis. It's the, it's the mountain castle for the city. They built it on the highest point. They did it in Corinth. They did it in Athens. They did it in Jerusalem, right? They had the, the mountain fortress. And so if the mountain falls into the midst of the sea, that's all of human security falling into chaos. Where, where does that leave us if that happens? Well... Shifts, doesn't it? It shifts from the scene of chaos on the earth to security in heaven. There is a city, and and let me read it and make sure we get it right. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her, and she will not fall. God will help her by break of day. Nations are in an uproar, kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice, and the earth melts. So now... We have a, we've gone from a scene of chaos to a scene of security. And if in the chaos, the refuge falls in the place of security, there's strength. So uh, there's, a, there's like the contrast that's being done for us here as we worship God. Look, look, all of the earth may fall, but there is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's what this is saying. A kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so then he goes into that third portion where he talks about sovereignty, where heaven changes earth. Look at, the, look at the, the illusions here. The Lord Almighty is with us. Okay, We might feel like, because we're on earth and everything is shaken, that we're in an insecure place, but we're not. Because the God that is the fortress is with us, is with us. 
the God of Jacob. And that God of Jacob kind of is an allusion to the personal covenant that's gone way back to the patriarchs. That God who has kept covenant faithfulness is with us. That's the point. And so then he goes on to say, um, come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he's brought upon the earth. So now the God of heaven who sits in a secure throne room can begin to act upon the earth and bring security for his people. Look at what he's done. He's brought desolations upon the earth. He imposes his will. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. So he's bringing that to a close. And then you see him breaking the bow and shattering the spear. Those are weapons. He's breaking them. They're not needed anymore because God is the safety of his people. And he burns the shields with fire. And then he says, be still and know that I'm God. And a question I always thought this is speaking to us. And if God's ever said to you, be still and know that I'm God, I'm not trying to negate that. But I think in this passage, I think he's saying to the earth as he's breaking all the weapons, be still to the earth, to the pagans, to the, the unbelieving people. Be still. Stop your warring and know I'm God and I'm in charge here. You might as well lay down your weapons because it's not even a fight. Be still and know that I am God. Okay, and then he says, goes on to say, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And so here we see him in his sovereignty and his helping presence. So as you read through the Psalms, I I would encourage as a first part, maybe don't worry so much about the parallelism. Slow down. Take your time. Read slowly. Ask the Lord to show you. What's in this for you? And I think he will. Any questions about the Psalms? I don't know if I have the answer, but maybe. All right. Why don't we stand? Thanks for your attention tonight. All right. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. And I pray, God, that if uh, in any way I've taken the razor's edge off the Psalms by these descriptions. I know that as best I've done, it's even more powerful, more dynamic, and more lively than anything that we could describe. And so, Lord, would you bring the Psalms alive to us? Help us to slow down and read these Psalms of worship that will help conform us to the people of God, to your heart, and let the prayers that we pray shape us as your people, because we want to be spiritually formed and formed well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.